Well, several times in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has brought up the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the primary identity marker of a believer in Christ. If you want to know whether or not someone is a part of God's family, look for the Holy Spirit. And we see this play out when Gentiles are hearing about and believing in Jesus in the book of Acts. And Paul makes the same point in the book of Romans. In Paul's mind, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And conversely, there's no such thing as a non-Christian who does have the Holy Spirit. However, if this is all true, a question may come up. How can we really know for sure that someone has the Holy Spirit? In the Old Covenant before Jesus, dominated by the law of Moses, circumcision was the primary marker of a member of God's family. It was a tangible sign, one that could be undeniably proven if it needed to be, though asking someone to prove it may have been a little bit awkward. But isn't this new identity marker, the Holy Spirit, a little more vague and a little less tangible than circumcision? In the book of Romans, Paul talked about how what matters is a circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, not a circumcision in the flesh. Well, how do you really know if someone's been circumcised in the heart? Having the Holy Spirit doesn't change someone's physical appearance the way circumcision did. So it's not quite as easy to prove. So how do we know who has the Holy Spirit and who doesn't? What's the external evidence of the Spirit's internal presence? How can we tell who's really an adopted child in the family of God versus an imposter? That's what we'll just talk about this morning in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul addresses the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this passage is beloved by many Christians. It really looks great when it's printed on kitchen decorations and embroidered on dish rags with pictures of grapes and apples and oranges. But the fruit of the Spirit is far more than just cute, flowery, poetic language that looks good on decorations. The fruit of the Spirit is an essential part of recognizing the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives as well as in the lives of others. The fruit of the Holy Spirit identifies us as children of God, and it identifies our brothers and sisters in Christ. So open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Feel free to use one of ours if you didn't bring a Bible, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you, the privilege that we have to worship you, to call you our Father and say it with confidence because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you for the privilege of singing together, praying with these people, giving. All these things are privileges. All these things are acts of worship. And I pray that the way we do them would build us up as individuals and build us up as a church, uh, but ultimately would glorify you. Father, I pray that we would be attentive to your word, attentive to what you have to say to us this morning. That may differ from person to person. Some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be reminded. Some of us need to be challenged. Uh, some of us need to be woken up out of a little bit of sleepwalking. Uh, so, Father, whatever category we might fall into, 
I pray that we would be open to what you have to say to us today through your word. We give you all the glory. We give you all our praise. And this is because Christ has died for us and Christ has risen. We love you. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, starting in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So as we begin, Paul sets our flesh, a shorthand way of referring to our sinful nature, in opposition to the Holy Spirit. These two do not get along. They're like oil and water. Sometimes we find ourselves wanting to do things that are more in line with the flesh, and the Holy Spirit holds us back. And then sometimes we want to do things in line with the Spirit and step with the Spirit, but the flesh might try to hold us back. Complicating matters is the fact that Christians like us, bearers of the Holy Spirit, still live in fleshly bodies. As a result of the sin in the Garden of Eden, we exist in a fallen world. And not only that, we too are guilty of the sin that got it this way. Thus, sadly, we are never completely free from the temptation and effects of sin in this life. As long as we live in these fleshly bodies, until our final breath, we will wrestle with sin. And that's part of why we so eagerly await the return of Christ. We look forward to the day when our physical fleshly bodies will rise from the grave and be redeemed from the effects of sin once and for all. And we'll see God's kingdom established on earth as it is in heaven in all its fullness. We look forward to that day when the battle versus sin is over with. But with all that being said, while sin will still trip us up in this life, God has given us the power to resist it. Sin doesn't have to dominate us the way it once did. And that's because God has given us his Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing battle as we learn to abandon the old ways of the flesh and walk in the new ways of the Spirit. Living in the flesh while possessing the Holy Spirit means that Christians may feel as though we're being pulled in two different directions. Paul sympathizes with that feeling in Romans chapter 7. But regardless of how conflicted we feel in this life, Regardless of how many times we successfully resist sin versus how many times we fall short. Regardless of how difficult and frustrating and exhausting and discouraging the battle between the flesh and the spirit may be, we have confidence that in the end the spirit wins. We have confidence that in the end there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to fear the day of judgment. We don't have to fear death because we belong to Christ. And the presence of the Holy Spirit proves it. So even after believing in Christ, both things are true. We are fleshly, sinful people, but we are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so much of the challenge of the Christian life 
is seeing these two paths laid out before us. The old path of sin and the new path of the Spirit. Every day there are times when we come to that fork in the road and we have to make a choice. And so Paul encourages us and challenges us and reminds us to turn away from that old path of the flesh and walk and step with the Holy Spirit down that new path of life. But what do these two paths look like? How is the new way of life different from the old? And how can we tell when we're walking in the flesh versus when we're walking in the spirit? That's where Paul picks up in verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul gives us this simple list of the works of the flesh, just a few examples to avoid. Now you might look at this list and say, you know, I don't really do any of those things. I've never really been guilty of any of those things for the most part, maybe one or two, but most of them don't apply to me. Well, these specific sins may not mark your old path, but you do have an old path. Every single one of us has an old path. This list reads like other lists in the New Testament. There's one that's very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. But Paul's point is simple. Leave behind those old ways. Leave behind those old traits and actions. They do not signal the presence of the Holy Spirit, but instead indicate his absence. That's not the new way of life. That's the old way of death and destruction. It's the path that leads to a dead end. It's the path that we already know far too well. The path that Christ has saved us from and the path that Christ has called us out of. But what about the new path? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul gave us those examples of the works of the flesh, but here he lists the fruit of the Spirit. These are the traits that ought to come about in the life of a believer, the characteristics displayed in a person who proclaims Jesus as Lord. This is the new path that Christ has saved us for and called us to. You can be confident that a person who believes in Jesus and displays this fruit really does have the Holy Spirit. You can be confident that they really are your brother or sister in Christ. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. When you meet someone who proclaims Jesus as Lord, is crucifying and leaving behind old ways of sin and forming new ways of holiness and righteousness, 
When you meet someone like that, you can have confidence that you're looking at a fellow member of God's family. You're looking at another bearer of the Holy Spirit. And it's wonderful when you can say along with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's wonderful when you can look in the mirror and know for certain that I am a new creation. The old is passing away. I can see it passing away. And the new is coming. The new is bearing fruit. It's wonderful when you can look at someone else and you can literally watch as they crucify their old desires. As they crucify their old sins and as they bear fruit by the power of the Spirit. That is a wonderful thing to witness. Now this illustration of bearing fruit is all over the pages of Scripture. Just a few examples. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist challenges the religious leaders to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John's point was pretty clear. God wasn't looking for sons and daughters in name only. He wasn't looking for people born into the right family line or people who simply know how to say all the right things or jump through all the right hoops. God was looking for people heartbroken by their sin, casting themselves on God's mercy and recognizing Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Another passage, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, Jesus himself says here, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So as Jesus warns his disciples against false prophets, he gives them some pointers about how to tell who these false prophets are. He tells them to look at their lives. Look at the fruit that they bear. He echoes John the Baptist and says that the person who doesn't bear fruit, the imposter, that person will face judgment. They'll be like a diseased tree torn down and thrown into the fire. Good for nothing. Jesus uses the same analogy in Matthew 21, verse 43. In the parable of the tenants, Jesus condemns the religious leaders one final time. And he says this. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus insists that the religious leaders will be judged because they didn't heed John's warning to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And that's why Jesus tells the religious leaders that God will take the kingdom away from them and give it to people who do bear fruit. He'll give it to people who do repent of their sin. 
He'll give it to people who do recognize and accept Jesus for who he truly is. John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul all use the same illustration. Bearing fruit. Those who bear fruit are God's people. And those who are given the gift of the Holy Spirit will bear fruit. And those given the gift of the Holy Spirit are those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. Now that's a quick summary of the passage. But now is a good time to talk about how we Christians have sometimes gotten this passage wrong. It's important that we get this right because, as we mentioned earlier, the fruit of the Spirit is the external result of the internal presence and work of the Holy Spirit. So understanding this passage correctly will be helpful in identifying our brothers and sisters in Christ. It will be helpful in reassuring us that we are children of God, especially when we might doubt it. But I want to focus on two primary ways that we may be tempted to go wrong when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. Starting with number one. The fruit of the Spirit is not a list of individual, optional habits or attitudes for our own personal enjoyment or fulfillment. In other words, we don't have the luxury of looking at this list, choosing the things that we like, choosing the things that we value, the things that come easiest to us, and then saying, well, I have the fruit of kindness, but the fruit of patience just isn't really for me. We can't say that. We don't have the luxury of looking at this list and saying, you know, I think I have the fruit of joy, but self-control, eh, that's not how I am. If the Holy Spirit is present within you, all of these traits are being produced. I once heard a popular preacher say that if you don't display the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't mean that you aren't saved. You're just missing out on God's best for your life. That's not how Paul presents it. This is not a list of commodities that we consume. These are not traits that God suggests to make us more happy, productive, successful, or likable. God expects us to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. He expects us to be this way because he has enabled us to be this way. He's given us the Holy Spirit for this very reason, to make us fruit-bearing people. Now, I'm not saying that you're only saved if you display all of these traits perfectly all the time. Any Christian with an ounce of humility, self-awareness, and experience will tell you that spiritual growth doesn't happen overnight. At times, we might display one of these traits more than the others. Some of us may have an easier time with patience, others with love, and others with gentleness. And we may have seasons where the fruit grows abundantly, and then other seasons where it feels like the fruit is barely there. That's all true. And while we acknowledge all of that, we also shouldn't reduce the fruit of the Spirit to a list of unimportant, take-it-or-leave-it habits that some Christians have, and if they do, good for them, and others don't. And if you don't, eh, no big deal. That's not how Paul presents the passage. 
The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence that we really are God's children. It's the evidence that we really are Spirit-filled people. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, By their fruits you will know them. And by our fruits, our brothers and sisters in Christ will know us. So that's error number one that we sometimes make with the fruit of the Spirit. But now error number two is this. We Christians have often been guilty of valuing the gifts of the Spirit far more than the fruit of the Spirit. Now you may be familiar with those passages. We see the various gifts of the Spirit listed in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And some of those gifts are pretty impressive. Paul lists gifts like healing and speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, don't get me wrong. Spiritual gifts are wonderful. Every believer has a unique spiritual gift to use for the good of the church. And we ought to be grateful for the spiritual gifts that God has given us and given those around us. And we ought to use them for God's glory. God gives those gifts for a reason. However, sometimes we focus Too much on the gifts of the Spirit because they're flashy and because they're glamorous. And we focus too little on the fruit of the Spirit because we think they're boring. The gifts can get you on stage in front of people. They might help you move up the ladder in the church. They could even get you a certain level of fame. After all, the gift of healing is way more impressive than the fruit of kindness, isn't it? The gift of speaking in tongues seems way more spiritual than the fruit of patience, right? The gift of prophesying seems to be way more powerful and way more impactful than the fruit of gentleness, doesn't it? We'll be careful. The gifts are important, but the fruit shouldn't be neglected. I was asked by someone recently, is this a spirit-filled church? They had never really met me before. They had just heard a little bit about our church, heard that I was a pastor. And one of the first questions they said was, is this a spirit-filled church? And typically when someone asks that question, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this was a weird exception case. But typically when someone asks that question, they're referring to the gifts of the spirit. Do you speak in tongues? Do you believe in the gift of healing? Do you believe in the continuing gift of prophecy. And whether or not those things still happen in the church, and why some churches practice them and why some churches don't, that is another conversation for another day. But I found myself wondering when they asked that question, are you a spirit-filled church? I found myself wondering, well, do you mean filled with the gifts or filled with the fruit? Because if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see a church that would put a lot of attention on the gifts. They loved the gifts. They even obsessed over the gifts. They practiced the gifts regularly. But they lacked the fruit. They were not patient with each other. They didn't love each other. They weren't gentle with each other. They lacked self-control. And they often pursued sin outright. And so how do we judge whether or not a church is spirit-filled? By the gifts or by the fruit. Now, thankfully, we don't have to choose between one or the other. God has given us both, and God gives them for good reason. But if I did have to choose, I would probably lean towards the fruit. 
Because not every believer will have the flashy gifts of the Spirit. But every believer should have the fruit of the Spirit. They may not seem as exciting, but they testify that we are God's children. They get us through the day-in and day-out challenges of following Jesus. And God can use the fruit of the Spirit to build up his church, serve our fellow believers, and glorify himself just as much as he can use the gifts. Now, as we wrap up, many of us probably will look at this list, the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll focus all of our attention on the areas where we fall short. We'll focus on the traits that we're not displaying. We'll worry about our lack of joy, our lack of patience, our lack of peace. Whatever issue you might have, whatever characteristic you think you might be lacking. But my reassurance to you would be this. That doesn't automatically mean that you aren't really a Christian if you're weak in one of these areas. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you lost your patience with your screaming toddler on the way to church this morning. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you lack self-control when you ate dessert last night. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you're not the spitting image of Jesus at all times right now. As we mentioned, spiritual growth takes time. We still live in fleshly bodies in a fallen world. So we will wrestle with sin. Sometimes we will display the fruit of the Spirit better than others. And the fact that you would be concerned about whether or not you're producing the fruit of the Spirit, that's a good sign in and of itself. It's healthy to humbly recognize the areas where we still have room to grow. So if that's you, I wouldn't want you to panic and question your salvation every single time you fall short. But I would issue you the same challenge that Paul does. Keep in step with the spirit that God has given you. Ask God to develop you in those areas. Surround yourself with spirit-filled people to teach you, encourage you, and Provide a good example for you. Hold you accountable when you fall short. And dive into God's spirit-inspired word. However, I'm also not going to sit here and tell you that a total lack of the fruit of the spirit is no big deal. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you're just missing out on God's best for your life. Because the fruit of the spirit is not presented as an elective that some Christians may pursue And others may not. It's not presented as something that you can reject if it doesn't suit you. The fruit of the Spirit is presented as the natural outcome of the Spirit's presence and work in our hearts and minds. So if you claim to be a believer in Christ and have done so for a long time, and yet no one on this planet would describe you as loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. If you've been a believer for a long time and those words do not apply to you, that's a problem. Talk with one of our church's leaders. Talk with a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Take an honest inventory of your faith. Open scripture and read. Ask God for wisdom and ask God for grace to better understand What's missing? Now, as we close, I'd like to read from John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus says there, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. May we all together abide in Christ. May we keep together in step with the Spirit. May we bear fruit for the good of others and the glory of God. And may the world know that we are Jesus' disciples through the fruit that we bear. In the Old Testament, God called the Israelites by his grace and gave them the law and set them apart to be holy. And in a way, God is still doing the same thing today. He's called us by his grace. He saved us through his son. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And he has set us apart to be holy as well. And to bear fruit for his glory. That the world may know that we are Jesus' disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage of scripture. I pray that we wouldn't reduce it to something cute and poetic and flowery but that we would take it as the challenge and the reminder that it really is. That we would be challenged and reminded and encouraged that we have your spirit living within us and that you are producing fruit within us. You are making us more loving. You are making us more kind. You are making us more peaceful and gentle and patient and self-controlled and every other word we see in that list. So, Father, I pray that you would grow us in those areas. I pray that we would be fruitful branches, that you would prune and develop and care for, that we can bear even more fruit, not for our glory, but for yours. I pray that we would look more and more like Christ, little by little, day by day, week by week. I pray that in those times where we fall short, And we are not patient or peaceful or joyful or loving. I pray that you would remind us that Christ is perfectly loving. Christ is perfectly peaceful. Christ is perfectly joyful and gentle and self-controlled and holy. And ultimately, he is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our justification. But Father, you saved us to bear fruit. And we simply ask that you would help us to do that. And that the world would glorify you by seeing us. We give you all the glory. We thank you for your kindness and your love and your gentleness and the grace that you show us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.